Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 151, The Serbo-Bulgarian War, Part 2. Now, first as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. So, first thanks to Jorge Toledo, who, as far as I know, is our first patron from Brazil, as well as new patrons Jason McCulley and Thomas Olson. Lastly, I want to give a shout-out to Joel, longtime listener, who grabbed lunch with me in Sofia recently. And, of course, a quick happy holidays to everyone who is listening to this at the time it's released, and a preemptive happy new year to all of you. Thank you all so much for listening, and let's get into it. Last time, we covered the first six days of the Serbo-Bulgarian War. In that time, Bulgaria rallied around its leaders, quickly raising volunteers and rushing its few available soldiers from one end of the country to the other to meet the threat. In those few days, the Bulgarians suffered defeat in the north, opening up a way for the Serbian advance on Vidin. In the center, the Bulgarians mounted a fighting retreat which bought time enough for the preparation of defenses at Slivnica. There, the Bulgarians held off the Serbs with fierce fighting. Those defenders at Slivnica, though, were very nearly outflanked after Bulgarian losses to the south, but a quick counterattack prevented that disaster. Now, it's November the 8th, and the Serbs are still advancing towards Vidin in the north. However, they have suffered huge losses at Slivnica and were very nearly routed the previous day, only saved by the oncoming of night. Now, the Bulgarians have the chance to turn the tide and begin advancing towards the Serbo-Bulgarian border. Now, from the 8th of November, the Serbs do begin what is effectively a fighting withdrawal. The Bulgarians advance on Dragoman, and after a day of intense fighting, the Serbs withdraw from there. By the 10th, the Bulgarians have won the Battle of Dragoman and taken the city. Meanwhile, up north, the Serbs finally arrive at Vidin and begin bombarding the city on the 11th. Being on the Danube was a real boon for Vidin as it allowed him to flood a series of ditches around their defenses, turning the city into a kind of island, and it also allowed them to be fairly easily resupplied by Bulgaria's Danubian navy. The Serbian force there attempted to convince uh, Uzonov, the local Bulgarian commander, to surrender the city by claiming that they had already taken Sofia, but he didn't buy it and simply responded, quote, In Russia, I have learned to defend, not to surrender fortresses. I will negotiate with you when you leave the borders of my homeland. Otherwise, I will go on the offensive and defeat you, end quote. I feel like those of us familiar with kind of Bulgarian grammar and, and, and the Bulgarian language can really appreciate that, that that directness is a characteristic of the language, although I think Uzonov was also a particularly direct fellow. Now, over the next few days, the Serbs continued their attacks on Vidin while the Bulgarians in the Central Front continued their advance on Dragoman. The first day after taking Dragoman, the Bulgarians took several key positions around Tsariprod, the first town on the Serbian border to fall in the war. 
Here, on the second day of fighting, a fierce Bulgarian attack, including a bayonet charge, pushed the Serbs back. They surrendered Sarebrod and retreated over the Serbian border to focus their attention on defending the first major Serbian town on their side, Pirot. Now, ten days after the war began, although the Serbs were indeed laying siege to Vidin, Bulgarian forces cross into Serbian territory. Now, it was already clear that King Milan's walk to Sofia wasn't going to be anything like what he imagined. In fact, on this day, the great powers sent a message to Sofia requesting the Bulgarians begin peace talks, clearly seeing where the war was going by this point. The next day, the Serbian parliament itself sent a request for a truce. However, the Bulgarians replied that the fighting would only stop when Prince Alexander commanded it to stop. Well, the fact was that Prince Alexander was on the front lines, and that meant he was a little bit late in responding to both requests. He ultimately denied both, stating that he would only accept a truce or the commencement of peace talks if recognizing Bulgarian unification was a precondition. However, at Vidin, there was a truce of several hours, which was agreed to in order for the evacuation of the wounded, but the Serbs violated this by improving their trench systems during the lull in fighting. So, in general, November 13th was a quiet day with the truce in Vidin and both sides around Pirot preparing for the coming battle. Thus, November the 14th began with a full Bulgarian assault on that city. By the evening, Bulgarian troops were about to enter Pirot itself before being stopped by heavy gunfire. Still, Pirot was virtually surrounded by the end of the day, in part owing to an attack led personally by Prince Alexander. The next day saw the taking of Pirot after a Bulgarian bayonet charge and intense fighting in the streets of the city. This victory for Bulgaria meant that the road to the even bigger city of Nish was now wide open. That day also saw the Bulgarian defenders at Vidin counterattack and throw the Serbs back. So, all that is to say, by November the 16th, the Bulgarians were switching over to the offensive in Vidin, as well as preparing to attack Nish. Now, although Serbia was frantically calling up its reserves at this point in a real panic, understandably, the Bulgarian army seemed poised to quickly move on to Belgrade. However, on that day, an Austrian diplomat stationed in Belgrade made a frantic journey through the military lines on horseback to reach Prince Alexander and inform him that if the Bulgarian army continued on to Belgrade, Austria-Hungary would get involved on the Serbian side of the war. Thus, the prince had no choice but to accept the great power's request for a truce. So, just like that, a truce was agreed to on the 16th of November. Now, despite this, the Serb, Serbs mounted one more all-out attack on Vidin on the 17th in an attempt to kind of gain the city and be in a stronger negotiating position, but this failed. So, the fighting was now over. Overall, estimates range that around 550 Bulgarians and maybe 770 Serbs were killed, and both sides saw just over 4,000 men wounded. So, uh, the whole... You know, the loss of life was not very great, which is unsurprising considering the entire war lasted basically two weeks. But the psychological effects of this conflict were profound. For one example, I'll quote R.J. Crampton. He wrote, quote, The Battle of Slivnica was a remarkable achievement for an untested army shorn of its senior officers. 
It was equally an achievement of the nation as a whole, and it is worth recalling that the highest incidence of medals for gallantry was amongst Muslim troops. More than any other event, the Battle of Slidnica welded the Bulgarians north and south of the Balkan mountains into one nation. End quote. Now, there's an argument to be made that nothing much was needed to weld the Bulgarians into one nation, but this point does still kind of highlight the importance of the battle, and it's still an important one. But while heroism and the remarkable performance of the Bulgarian soldiers and volunteers can't be denied, the true legacy of the war was at this moment still to be decided. So, as negotiations were beginning, where did things stand? Now first, it should come as no surprise that Bulgarian-Russian relations were now worse than ever. In fact, on November the 5th, during the beginning of the pivotal Battle of Slidnica, the Russians officially removed Alexander Battenberg from the Russian army. He was a kind of honorary officer there. Rekun quotes the Russian account of how Battenberg reacted, writing, quote, His Highness complained bitterly and said that he did not deserve this humiliation which he received from Russia. He wept bitterly when he received the deeply stunning news of his exclusion without trial from the Russian army. He knew that his battalion, into which he had been inducted by the late Tsar, in whose ranks he had fought side by side with common soldiers, and which was therefore for him more dear than anything in the world, was gathered in a field, and with a drum roll it was announced that he was excluded from their ranks, and the officers promptly tore off his monogram from their shoulder straps. This shame and humiliation he would never forget for his whole life, end quote. Battenberg even reportedly said that he regretted that he didn't have a regiment of which the Tsar was the chief so he could return the favor. So, as Rekun puts it, quote, By the end of 1885, then, Bulgaria and Russia stood even farther apart than before, with a number of important bonds broken. The bond of sympathy, forged during the Russo-Turkish War and the liberation of Bulgaria, was greatly tarnished by Russian action, and the bond of admiration in the form of Russian control over a key part of the Bulgarian state had been first removed and then shown to be unnecessary. End quote. In other words, I, th I think we talked about this before, right? That previously Russia had made itself seem indispensable for Bulgaria, and many Bulgarians and many Bulgarian politicians thought that was the case. But the risk Bulgaria took, sorry, the risk Russia took by withdrawing all of its support and its officers during this war was the risk of showing that it wasn't as necessary as many thought. And that's effectively what happened. Still, at this moment, Battenberg enjoyed a surge of popularity for his role in the unification and leading the Bulgarian army to victory. Again, further kind of harming Russia's position as they're really at odds. But now things turn to diplomacy. The great powers, for their part, largely wanted just a return to the status quo before the war, i.e. no Bulgarian unification. But, luckily for Bulgaria, London vetoed this. Ultimately, they were able to endorse direct negotiations between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire, as well as between Bulgaria and Serbia. So, in other words, the great powers wanted to hold kind of a larger conference to sort of decide everything. London made sure that instead there would be simply smaller bilateral negotiations and the great powers would be less involved. So as negotiations began, Bulgaria still occupied some of Serbia and Serbia still occupied some of Bulgaria. 
Now, obviously, this is one of the first issues to resolve. Initially, the Serbs refused to withdraw to their borders unless the Bulgarians did the same. But the Bulgarians refused because they want to occupy Pirot as a guarantee that Serbia will pay war reparations. Because, well, obviously, Bulgaria's finances are very strained. You know, Bulgaria's finances weren't great to begin with. And then you add the cost of unification, which is fairly expensive and somewhat cumbersome. And then on top of that, you add the cost of the war. And yeah, Bulgaria could use some war reparations. So things progressed like this for a couple weeks. But as the talks dragged on, the Bulgarians were concerned that Serbia was simply using this time to prepare for further fighting as they refused to agree to anything longer than a six-week truce. In response, Bulgaria informed Austro-Hungarian diplomats that it might resume the war in December if the Serbs didn't make some concessions. So, all that is to say, both sides are really playing hardball here, and the possibility of the war resuming is very real. So, in response, the Austro-Hungarians called together a commission of military attaches from Russia, Austria-Hungary, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and a representative from the Ottoman Empire. These officials arrived in Pirot on December the 6th. Three days later, an agreement was finally signed, although the Serbs only signed after being threatened by the Austro-Hungarians. There's really some pretty serious Serb kind of... Uh, arrogance going on here like they they just refuse to accept defeat uh but you know it's understandable this is quite a bad situation for them now under the agreement that was finally signed both sides withdrew to their respective territories and agreed to a more final set of peace negotiations in february so that initial issue of the occupation of territory was for now resolved so in the final cold months of the year while both sides held their breath, no doubt wondering what a final peace might bring, a few other things occurred. Now, first, the mostly useless Russe to Varna rail line was finally purchased by Bulgaria from Great Britain. Also, some laws were passed to further ensure Bulgaria and Eastern Romania would kind of function in the same way, continuing the unification process, but otherwise, the winter seems to have passed fairly quietly. Except for, of course, the soldiers, no doubt, still manning the garrisons and things and wondering whether the war might resume. Now, in late January, a bilateral convention was held between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire to work out unification. Because, well, it's easy to forget at this point that the Ottomans did not like Bulgaria unifying. And although they didn't go to war over it, they still had some concerns. It was decided that the union between Bulgaria and Eastern Romania would indeed be limited to a personal one under Prince Alexander, who was appointed Governor General of Eastern Romania for the usual five-year term. So, what this meant was that the Treaty of Berlin was kept intact, because no formal, complete unification happened. Instead, they simply kind of went around the Treaty of Berlin by making Prince Alexander the Prince of Bulgaria and the Governor General of Eastern Romania. So, they, they kind of did the same thing they did in Romania by unifying two states with a personal union. But what's worse here is that this is temporary for five years. But that wasn't all. The Ottomans also annexed two portions of eastern Romania around Kurjli and Tumrush. In addition, Bulgaria would have to assume all of eastern Romania's debts. Thus, in a way, the agreement gave the burden of unification without many of the benefits. Still, this agreement was still essentially provisional, 
because it would require approval by the great powers. Preparations were still underway for a meeting in Bucharest to kind of finalize everything. In the meantime, Karavelov appointed Ivan Geshov as one of Bulgaria's representatives to those peace talks in Bucharest. Now, technically the Bulgarian delegation will be headed by an Ottoman diplomat because technically Bulgaria was still a vassal state, but in practice, Geshov would lead the team. He was instructed to demand Serbia pay 25 million leva in damages. However, after speaking with representatives from the great powers, it was very clear that Geshov, or to Geshov, that none of the great powers supported any compensation for Bulgaria whatsoever. It seems all the great powers wanted was, once again, simply to return to the status quo as soon as possible. The fact that Bulgaria had won the war with Serbia seemed to matter very little to anyone. They just want things the way they want it. So, it's, it's the usual situation with the great powers in the Balkans. They don't really care about facts on the ground. They don't care what anyone on the ground thinks or wants or what happened recently. It's all about what they want. Now, negotiations in Bucharest began officially on January the 23rd. And even within the very first session, it was clear that these would be very difficult negotiations. The Serbian representative felt that he had the backing of the great powers, and so he behaved as if his country had not just suffered a humiliating defeat. Serbia utilized delaying tactics, bringing up endless side issues like railroad construction and trade rights. In private, the Serbian representative proposed that he and Geshov should agree on a final division of Macedonia. But on the other hand, when the topic of financial compensation for the war came up, Serbia threatened to resume fighting. In essence, Serbia knew that if fighting resumed now, it would be in a far better position. Remember that Serbia had not fought with all of its soldiers mustered, and it had not utilized its best generals. It had only really gathered a portion of its, of its possible strength. And so the Serbs were prepared to fight again and felt that they would do much better the second time. In addition, Greece was still demanding its own compensation for Bulgaria unification. And in addition to that, pro-Russian elements within the Bulgarian government were looking to take advantage of the situation with their own takeover. So, Geshov was working against the clock and trying to find a suitable peace agreement as quickly as possible because lots of clocks were ticking. But it was a losing battle. Not a single great power backed Bulgaria. So when the Treaty of Bucharest was finally signed on February 19th, eight years to the day after the Treaty of San Stefano, it was a humiliation for Bulgaria. Bulgaria's unification with Eastern Romania was not even mentioned, effectively leaving the agreement that they had just come to with the Ottomans in place, i.e. personal union, no formal unification. There would be no financial or territorial compensation of any kind. In fact, the treaty only had a single article. It established peace between Bulgaria and Serbia. That was it. Remember, that's what the great powers wanted. Return to the status quo, and that is what they got. Now, bilateral work with the Ottomans did continue, and on Prince Alexander's birthday, the Tofane Agreement finally officially recognized full unification. So, eventually unification was achieved, but the process had come with terrible costs. Despite its victory in the war, Bulgaria was still saddled with the cost of the war, the cost of unification, and all the debts of Eastern Romelia. 
Bulgaria had gained virtually nothing from its victory in this war except the humiliation of its neighbor, where deep resentments were now planted. In fact, Misha Glenny describes just how surprisingly far-reaching the lessons of the Serbo-Bulgarian War were, writing, quote, The failure of King Milan in the Serbo-Bulgarian War made it clear that in order to prosecute a war beyond state boundaries, the ruler had to translate the new cultural nationalism of the new Balkan states into a dynamic political force. All parties and states drew similar lessons from the war. First, a strong, disciplined, and motivated standing army was an essential prerequisite for a foreign policy based on state interests. Second, a quiescent peasantry was absolutely necessary for domestic order, but this in itself was not sufficient for a credible foreign policy. Governments would not have to inoculate the peasantry with a sense of commitment to their particular national goals. To achieve this, the governments of Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia each diverted their energies into creating a strong military and forging a modern, exclusivist, and aggressive national identity. The center of this struggle for the soul of the Balkan peasant was Macedonia. End quote. So, there's a lot happening in that quote, but essentially, this war, although it seems like it didn't really result in much, it taught incredibly important lessons. And all the states in the Balkans saw that they had to pursue a strong military and a strong kind of nationalist identity if they were going to achieve their national aims. And in particular, these identities had to be exclusionary, that they had to say, you know, Macedonia is ours. It is only ours. It will only ever be ours. And basically, you're, you're, you're kind of setting up a situation where all these states are going to have to come into conflict, where they're all going to be, you know, given these identities and these deep-seated beliefs that are mutually exclusionary. And so again here, we can see another example of these many events which lead to the perception that the Balkans are a violent place, burdened with, quote, too much history, which is an expression I really hate, and riddled with nationalism. But what annoys me is the people who, who talk about that but don't talk about why. And this is one of the reasons why. You know, having these nation-states emerge in the Balkans, with each with their own goals, but having their goals and having their aims constantly meddled with by the great powers and having this kind of bizarre artificial political and military situation imposed on them by the great powers created a lot of this nationalism. And it's frustrating to later see, you know, people from the great powers come in and say, what's wrong with it? Why are you all so weird? Why, why are you all so violent? What's the deal here? When it was their policies to the great extent that kind of created the, the circumstances. But that's a whole long other question. But the reality is that the great powers put the Balkan states in a position where fighting amongst themselves was virtually inevitable in an era where maximalist nationalism was the standard political fuel for such conflicts in the rest of Europe just as much as its southeastern corner. So where do things stand now in Bulgaria? One would assume that Prince Alexander would be riding high. I mean, he, he just won the war. He obtained unification. Well, things are a little more complicated. Now, while the war and unification initially saw Battenberg's popularity surge, he quickly set about wasting those gains. First, he allowed many Eastern Rumelian officials to be treated poorly by Bulgarian officials, as if they were not equals, which obviously created a lot of resentment. In the army, 
where he had so recently enjoyed unrivaled popularity with the Russian kind of alternate source of popularity removed, he worked to ensure that the most important qualification for advancement in the army was political loyalty to him personally. This meant that many heroes of the recent war were passed over for promotion, creating yet more resentment. Then there were the the domestic challenges. The lack of financial compensation for the war led to severe economic conditions. The government had been forced to commandeer great quantities of food during the war, so now many farmers were facing the prospect of a deadly winter without enough provisions. Taxes also had to be raised, and the way in which the administration of Eastern Romelia had been taken over and run upset many there. So, although Alexander had little to do with a lot of these more internal administrative issues, many still blamed him. Many prominent Eastern Rumelian citizens, including Ivan Vazov, actually signed a letter which stated, quote, A deep, profound mourning has struck every Bulgarian upon the announcement of the agreement established between the Sublime Port and the government of the Principality of Bulgaria. The latter, foreseeing the reactions which might arise from such an act, did not decide to make it public in all of its particulars, But if the newspapers were at least partially correct in their contents, then enough is known to awake the indignation in the heart of the Bulgarian people. Such an agreement represents an encroachment upon the honor and interests, upon the present and the future of the Bulgarian people. The government of the principality has turned eastern Romelia into a conquered province. In this difficult moment, we, the representatives of the people, consider it our moral moral duty to protest against the agreement between the port and Prince Alexander Battenberg, composed against the will and desires of the Bulgarian people. End quote. That should make it clear just how intense the resentments against Battenberg are amongst Eastern Romelians. So, just as the Russian Tsar had taken to blaming every single setback in Bulgaria on Battenberg, it seems that more in the country itself were now willing to do exactly the same thing. So, his internal struggles were worsening elsewhere as well. As I mentioned, Dragan Tsankov and others had laid the groundwork to use a potential Bulgarian defeat against the Serbs to return to power with, with Russian backing. Now, that defeat had not come, but they were still determined to take power. Tsankov was in a difficult personal financial situation, so he used his position as Russia's best hope for a new pro-Russian government to secure cash payments from them. He used some of the money to found a new pro-Russian newspaper titled Svetlina, or Light. So an anti-Bottenberg coalition was forming between pro-Russian political and military officials, as well as those who simply felt he was treating them unfairly but there were also greater geopolitical issues at hand. While Tsar Alexander III of Russia was humiliated by the recent events, Bulgaria was left without a single great power backing it, which was, for a Balkan state, a very dangerous position to find yourself in. Karavelov wanted to rectify this by patching up relations with Russia, but this was proving impossible while Prince Alexander remained on the throne. So, It should come as no surprise when, on May the 7th, a Russian officer who had served in eastern Romelia and resigned when unification occurred led a group of 30 men off of a Russian steamer and onto a Bulgarian beach between Burgas and Aitos in the middle of the night. Their mission was to kidnap Prince Alexander, or if that proved too hard, just to kill him. 
as well as to kill Karavelov and the local police chief. This would allow them to begin a rebellion which would give Russia a reason to intervene and install a pro-Russian government. Now, they were captured soon afterwards and the whole thing went nowhere, but the local Russian consul demanded that they be returned to Russia, and surprisingly they actually were. They were not executed for treason or anything. But all this showed just how deadly serious Russian opposition to Badenberg was. And about a month later, all the great powers, along with Bulgaria and the Ottomans, signed formal statements recognizing that the unification process of Bulgaria was indeed settled. So, the war's over. Unification's been achieved. But peace, prosperity, and growth for Bulgaria, those all seem to be distant dreams. Next time, we'll see how Bulgaria's difficult situation will resolve as so many men, inside and outside of the country, work to remove Prince Alexander Battenberg. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast. We'll see when that resumes at bghistorypodcast.com, as well as the page connected to this in the description below. And I'll see you all in the next one.